Good morning, church. Always a privilege to open God's Word, but it's a especially uh, uh, it's it's a special blessing for me this morning to stand in front of the second service, since uh, my family and I typically worship during the first service. So, getting to know some of you a little bit better is is always a great thing. This morning, uh, we are going to be in First Peter three, beginning in verse eighteen. First Peter three. 18. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and, and the gentleman will, will get one for you. We are continuing our look at our response to suffering. Peter discussed that last week and we're going to continue on with that theme, focusing this week more on how our suffering should point others to Christ. So if you're there, 1 Peter 3.18, will you please stand in honor of God and his word? I'm reading out of the New American Standard translation, so it might be a little different from what you're reading. It says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. God, we pray your blessing be upon your word in this difficult passage that uh, for us as uh, 21st century uh, followers of Christ, uh, some of these things are challenging us for, to understand. So please speak to us. May we uh, come away here encouraged motivated and inspired to be more like Christ our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please take a moment, greet uh, those around you. Our response to suffering should point others to Christ. And as we saw last week in verses three, uh, 13 to 17, we began to look at that significant section of scripture dealing with this topic of how we should respond to suffering. Peter focuses particularly in that few verses on the issue of suffering unjustly. We began to look at that mural of connecting the dots and he started connecting the dots for us. He took us to David, he took us to Isaiah. He perhaps alluded to his own failure at at the foot of Jesus during Jesus's unjust trial when Peter denied him three times. Last week, we then looked at Acts and saw how and really how we should be living our faith out in suffering, even if suffering unjustly. Today's passage, we're going to continue that discussion. And Peter emphasizes why it's important for us to suffer for righteousness' sake versus for evil's sake. 
And the reason for that is simple. It's because that's exactly what Jesus did. He suffered unjustly and did so because he loves us. Earlier on in Peter's letter, letter we saw that Peter discussed Jesus' uh, acts, his works, and that he purchased us with his blood as the perfect lamb. He then goes on to talk about, Peter does, how Jesus refused to retaliate for insults, cast his way when he bore our sins on his body on the cross. He healed us with his wounds. So today, Peter circles back around to that theme, looks at the work of Christ, and first, number one, shows us that Jesus' death produced eternal victory on our behalf. The gospel. Number one, Jesus produced eternal victory on our behalf. And second, that our suffering, like our Lord's, is often how we may bring glory to God and fulfill our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Our calling, our purpose, is obviously to bring glory to God. And one of the ways he does that most profoundly is in our suffering. And that brings us to the passage. He begins in verse 18 with that word for. That can be translated because. So we have to look back to verse 17 to find the reason. This is the reason for verse 17. The reason it is better to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong is because Jesus also died for sins once for all. Peter asserts that if we suffer for doing good, we are simply following the example of our Savior. However, I do want to pause here to footstomp this. Christ's death is unique because he died for our sins. We don't ever die for the sins of anyone else. No one else ever dies for the sins of anyone else. And yet Peter here borrows from the Old Testament. He borrows from the Jewish tradition and he, and he alludes to the important sacrificial system that anchors the Old Testament law. And in particular, he, he is referencing that yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement when the high priest, the great high priest would enter into the temple or the tabernacle and go into the holy place and then into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And there on behalf of the nation of Israel, provide this sacrifice before God. That they might be forgiven, that they might be rightly restored to God in heaven. And yet, unlike those sacrifices in the Old Testament that needed to be offered day after day and year after year, we see here in verse 18, Christ died once for all, period. That's it. End of story. His one-time sacrifice on the cross was fully sufficient to bear the penalty for our sin. That all who would accept him and his sacrifice to God the Father would be saved. And I encourage you, take some time to go through the book of Hebrews 
And the author of the book of Hebrews connects the dots for us in that he demonstrates how Jesus is greater than the angels. He demonstrates how Jesus is greater than Abraham, the prophets, Moses, and the, the entire sacrificial system of priests and offerings. In this, we see, in a nutshell, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Jesus died the just for the unjust, once and for all, that we might be made right with God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And if you've entered into that relationship with God, you've placed your faith in Christ as your Savior, understand that this relationship that you have now with God is not something you should be thinking of when you're a new believer. This is something that should inform how you live, how you think day in and day out. It's like a diamond. You hold a diamond up into the light and you see the beautiful spectrum of colors uh, radiate out from that and you, you move it around and you see how, how glorious it is. Well, as Christians, that's what we should be doing with the diamond of the gospel. We should be looking it up into the light and, and considering it as we go through, through the experiences of our days and our months and our years. We, we look at how the gospel informs who we are and how we live. We, we never outlive the gospel. We never get too mature for the gospel it is foundational for who we are and what we believe. And so again, we see Jesus, the just, dying for us, the unjust. And this is not because we deserved it. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard, his glory. And yet we know that God showed such great love for us that yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, who had no sin nature, Jesus, who never sinned, took our place as sinners. And when he did that, he, he suffered on our behalf. He suffered as our representative, taking our penalty for sin and therefore, therefore opening the way to having that right relationship with God the Father so that all who would believe in him, all who would repent, and trust in him as Savior, would be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And so despite being put to death in the flesh, we see here that Jesus was then made alive in the Spirit. While he may have died physically here on earth, he was raised to a new spiritual life in heaven. And again, this is a key truth to our Christian faith. This anchors what we believe and who we are. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, tells us that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and our faith is in vain. What's the point? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, he is no hope for deliverance. He is not our Savior. Paul goes on to say that, our flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does our perishable inherit the imperishable, but the dead in Christ will be raised with new immortal, imperishable, 
spiritual bodies because of his finished work. And this goes back to, to Peter's point for us is that we don't need to fear suffering. We don't need to fear death. We already have the victory through King Jesus. And we should live according to that victory. If we really believe this truth, that we can go through the most difficult of things and perhaps giving our lives up for Jesus Christ, we truly believe that we are going to be risen again in the glory of God. How then should we live? How does that affect your interactions with your neighbor? How does that affect your interactions with your loved ones? If Jesus loved you to die in your place, the just for the unjust, how much more should you forgive those around you and be willing to suffer unjustly? He was perfect. We are not. And so our lives should reflect this reality in how we think, how we live, regardless of the context, regardless of the circumstance. Last time I spoke, uh, before last week, when I spoke last fall, I told you that my dad was dying. He was in hospice. Well, in January, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, my dad did pass away, and he entered, he entered into the presence of Christ. And if you've never experienced the loss of losing someone you love immensely, um, I can tell you from my experience, it changes you. You, you look at life, you look at death differently, you, you look at what you've invested in, you look at what you believe, you look at your priorities, and you, you wrestle with what you've done and, and what you're living for. Things that were once taken for granted are infused with new meaning, and life's priorities are examined in depth. So I've, I've gone through this process uh, these last few months. And uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says it's better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. Because in the house of mourning, you pause and you reflect on life. And as I've done that, as I've reflected on my life, as I reflected on the life of my dad and, and reflected on my faith and reflected on who God is and what he's done, I can stand before you this morning confident that God is faithful. He is true. He alone has answers to life. He alone can help us through suffering and hardship and difficulty. I am more confident and more secure in my hope that Jesus' death and resurrection bring salvation to all who believe in him. If we take God at his word, we should not. No, we must not live in suffering and fear of death. We should not live in fear of suffering and death. And when we have this understanding, when we have this faith, it is so liberating. It is so freeing because we can live through life unchained. We're not enslaved. We're not in bondage. We're free to follow the Lord and what he has us to do. And that's the essence of what Peter is driving at in this passage, 
is we don't have to fear suffering. We don't have to fear death. No matter what happens to us in the future, we can have hope in Christ because he's risen from the dead. And if we really believe that, that will change the way that we think and and live. And so if we are right with God, we can go through life with hope, with joy, and with peace in a world full of anxiety, in a world full of despair and hatred and, and anger, because we know Christ has already won the victory. And that is the eternal perspective that we need to keep our eyes fixed upon when we go through hard things. Now, beginning in verse 19 and on to verse 20 and 21, the passage gets a little confusing. And we might be tempted to ignore the difficulties uh, inherent with it to understand it fully. And I honestly, I I wrestled with, with how to approach this next section with you. Normally, you know, when, when you get up and, and speak with God's word, you, you come with authority thinking that you know what scripture says. Uh, in this passage, um, I'm going to share with you what across church history, um, theologians greater than, than myself have, have come to believe and think in this passage. Now, while we do this, I, I do it for a couple of reasons. I do it because I think it's, it's good for us to wrestle with Scripture and, and to know that even if we don't have everything perfectly figured out, we can know that God has uh, the greater context here. He, he's going to make it clear to us what this fully means. But I also want to demonstrate that uh, we should never take difficult passages and anchor uh, all of our doctrine in difficult passages that are confusing, uh, that aren't clear to us. Uh, when you do that, you, you tend to go astray, and that's where often cults go, is they take these hard-to-understand passages and rest them out of context with, without understanding the broader context of Scripture. So keep that in mind. But as we look at verses 19 and 20, with a high view of Scripture, believing that all of God's Word is profitable to us, it's important for us to wrestle with it. And so I invite you in looking with me at these verses. And as we wrestle through these verses, um, there are six questions that are key to understanding this passage. And... As, as we go through this, they're going to briefly pop up on the monitor behind me. Just know you're probably not going to have time to jot it all down. Okay, so just work with me. Try to understand the flow of thought for each one of these three understandings of this passage. And then, and then we'll draw some conclusions at the end. So there in verse 19, Peter says, In which also he, Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So here are those six questions that I alluded to earlier. Number one, we want to answer, where did Jesus go? It says he went 
Where exactly is that? What does this mean where he went somewhere? Number two, it says that Jesus made proclamation. He preached. Well, was that a, a sermon of repentance? Was that a sermon of judgment? Was that a sermon of, you know, God is patient? The third question is, who are these spirits there in verse 19? Does that refer to demons, angels? Does that refer to people, the spiritual aspect of us? The fourth question is, there at the end of verse 19, what is this prison? Is that a metaphor? Is that a literal prison? Is that referring to the place of the dead? (coughs) Number five, when did all this take place? When did Jesus go and preach this message? Was that in the past? Or was that when he, uh, after he was crucified? Or was it after he rose from the dead? And then number six, really, what is the outcome of Jesus' preaching? Was it a rebuke? People profess faith in him. Uh, It served as a victory message. What does that mean? What was the outcome? So I'm briefly now going to go through those three different understandings of these tough verses very quickly, just to give you an overview of where the church has gone with its understanding of this passage. So the earliest position, the one that the church fathers held to at the beginning after the first century, um, they looked at Jesus going to the realm of the dead. That's where Jesus went. He went to preach a message of salvation that those who were Spirits, those were those individuals who either died at the time of Noah's flood or it's referring to all Old Testament saints. All right, tracking with me so far? So this message Jesus proclaimed was a message of salvation. He went to prison, which in this understanding is the place of the dead, which is Hades. And as a result of that, He moved those Old Testament saints from the realm of the dead to heaven. And proponents of this view say Luke 16, 22, um, where that phrase Abraham's bosom, that's where they draw that from. Supporters of this view um, are Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and then also John Calvin. So, we see some very strong theologians there uh, mixed in with, with perhaps Origen, who's questionable. But perceived weaknesses from, from people who hold the other views is they think this argues for a second chance of salvation, contrary to Hebrews 9.27, um, where it says man is appointed to, to die once and then after that to face the judgment. Uh, however, proponents of this view would argue that those who were saved had their faith in the future Messiah. Okay. Um, a perceived weakness here is that uh, Ephesians 4, 9, that where it says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, people argue, well, that is really talking about Jesus descending from heaven to earth, not to the place of the dead. Right? So, so that's a perceived weakness of this view from those who hold the other two positions. 
All right, so that's the first position, the oldest position. The next one is that Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, he spoke through Noah and he spoke a message of repentance that those alive during Noah's day would receive, they would hear this message of repentance because they, their prison was an imprisonment to sin. It was not a, a physical or spiritual place. They were metaphorically bound to sin. And the outcome from this message through the pre-incarnate Christ was that only eight people, Noah, his wife, their sons, and their daughters-in-law were the ones who were rescued. The rest of the world perished. Supporters of this view, you have Augustine, and then you have some more recent theologians like Grudem and Erickson, Feinberg, Big, and Skilton. The challenge with this view is that there is no evidence of a Christophany here. There is no evidence that Jesus actually was there speaking through Noah. And that being raised to life through speaking by Noah isn't a normal way to talk about that. And then also spirits here doesn't typically refer to dead people. All right, so, so there's some questions in position two. And then the third position is that Jesus went to heaven proclaiming a message of victory after overcoming the unclean spirits, the evil demonic spirits uh, of, the, of the gospels. And some people believe that these evil spirits also describe the fallen angels of Genesis 6, 1 to 4. The sons of God of that passage um, who then had... Uh, sexual relations with, with women. Um, and so the prison here refers to the earth and maybe the abyss where Satan is thrown, right? And that's Revelation 9, 11, and 12. So this took place, according to these proponents, after his death and resurrection while he was ascending to heaven. He didn't go to the place of the dead. He was pro proclaiming victory over the spiritual forces, who believes this? Uh, supporters include most contemporary theologians. Um, weaknesses perceived of this uh, position is that it's heavily dependent on tradition. It's not explicitly made clear in scripture. Uh, angels and women having uh, sexual relations is not clearly stated in scripture. And it's not normative by our experience, right? So uh, those are some weaknesses there. So... We have those three positions of this passage. Very different understanding of, of verses 19 and 20 over the course of history. From my position, each, each position does have some merits and, and there are some perceived weaknesses. So I can't personally be dogmatic about one over the other. And I would be careful if, if anyone was dogmatic about one. But regardless of what view someone holds on these two verses, it is crystal clear that God, again, in his mercy and his patience, allows time for his enemies to repent. He gives us time to repent. Christians, Peter tells us, should then endure hostility. We should endure difficulty and suffering with that same attitude knowing that we don't need to be afraid of suffering and death. 
So while suffering unjustly, we can emulate Christ. Yet on the flip side, we also know that through hardship, God will rightly judge right from wrong. He is the ultimate judge. He does all things right. And he will hold people accountably, accountable for their, for their actions. And he will ultimately deliver his people from evil. And that's where Peter then brings us to verse 21, where he's now connecting the dots with his original audience and Noah's experience. He's showing them that baptism is a symbolic truth of a spiritual, is a symbolic picture of a spiritual truth. Verse 21, corresponding to that, talking about that whole discussion of 19 and 20, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, baptism is a symbolic picture of a spiritual truth. Noah and his family experienced God's judgment through that flood, and yet they remained unharmed while the rest of the world died, according to Scripture. Why is that? Because they trusted God. They took him at his word. God told Noah to build the ark. He built it. God told him to get in the ark. He did. And as a result, he and his family were saved. Peter here is saying, Christian, you, through Christ, have symbolically experienced God's judgment through water baptism, and yet you have remained unharmed because you have trusted God at his word and believed in Christ from rescue for sin. He's connecting the dots between that Old Testament story and the truth of what they were experiencing in suffering. They were rescued. They could be rescued ultimately from their suffering and death because Jesus already did so. He paid the price and rescued them. You know, in my, in my almost 30 years in the Navy, I've been able to experience firsthand many, many times the sheer power and, and beauty of the world's oceans. There is nothing like being out in the middle of the Pacific at night when you can look up and gaze at the stars and you can see the Milky Way in all of its glory, all of its splendor. Uh, it is literally a cloud. You can see the cloud. And it's just as clear as you can see a cloud on a sunny day. And it's, it's inspiring and stunning. On the other hand, there's also nothing almost as awe-inspiring and, and fear-provoking as being out at sea when the weather is rough. Uh, I remember being part of the Nimitz strike group. We were a couple hundred miles off the coast of India trying to skirt a typhoon. And on Nimitz, it's a, it's a super carrier, right? Um, the flight deck is about 50 feet or so off the surface of the water. And we were going through the waves like this. And when we'd crest the wave, and then when the bow would go down into that, to that trough, it would get submerged under the water. And we were 50 feet off the ground doing that. And I was, uh, I was up on the bridge 
and uh, I was I was praying, and I was I was looking at all the washstanders, and and they were they're busy doing their thing and just plowing through the water like it was nothing. And then so I look over to the port side to the left, and off off you know a little ways, you see he's look down, see a small little destroyer, and that sucker was largely under the water. It was largely a submarine. And if you were a sailor on that destroyer and you were outside the skin of the ship, you were going to die. There was no way you were going to survive. And I, I think back on that experience and reflect on how terrifying it must have been to experience the, the wrath of, and judgment of God in that flood that Noah and his family went through. We have all this technology and, and all of this power and, and understanding of physics and, and all of that, and yet um, I was still praying for safety in the storm. How much greater was their concern, their fear, going through that very difficult, hard trial, uh, and, and yet know that they put their faith in God and trusted him to get them through it. And so it, it, it points us to the reality that we see in scripture, the ark saved Noah and his family physically. And now Peter is connecting the dots to us as believers, how if we run to the ark of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, that we are spiritually safe. And that, and that relationship between the two is represented by our baptism. It's important to note here, baptism does not save us. It does not. And we know this, we, we see in verse 21, Peter makes this clear to us, that baptism is not the, what he's referring to is not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's not talking about getting wet and that somehow getting wet washes away our spiritual guilt. He's not talking about that. What instead saves us is that that baptism, that is last part of verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the baptism that saves. So what saves a person plagued by sin in a guilty conscience? It's not the external right of being baptized in water, but it's the agreement with God to get into the ark of safety, the Lord Jesus, to believe in his substitutionary death and resurrection. And when we do that, we are uniting ourselves with him. And that's why we see in, in Matthew 28, Jesus, when he gives us his great commission, he tells us to go make disciples and then what? baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that command to baptize as part of that disciple-making process shows us the link of what baptism represents to the new life that is ours in Christ. Again, we are saved because Christ paid the price for our sins on the cross. He buried, he rose again, and we believe in him. Baptism represents that complete break from our past life. 
Just like the flood washed away the old sinful world, baptism pictures our break from our old sinful lifestyle and our entrance into the new life in Christ. So I encourage you, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and you've not been baptized, pray about that. That's a, that's a step of obedience that demonstrates your active faith in Jesus and what he has done for you. So, having shown us the connection between Noah, the flood, our baptism in Christ, Peter emphasizes Christ's power to save us completely there in verse 22. You'll notice Jesus is now, he's at the right hand of God. He's gone through into heaven. And all these angels, authorities, and powers have now been made subject to him. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. After he ascended, where did he go? He went to the right hand of God the Father, the place of prominence, the place where the military general would sit, the place where the king's primary advisor would sit. And so here, in that mural we're painting about our response to suffering, Peter's connecting the dots with another scripture passage, this one in Psalm 110, the passage most cited in the New Testament, that emphasizes Jesus' supremacy over all things. The fact that the Lord has authority and dominion over all creation. All things are subject to him. Whether it's humans, governments, angelic beings, and, and this is whether they're good or bad. He is the king. And so Peter is showing us again and again after all these different examples from, from verses 13 through 22, how Jesus has bought us victory and we don't have to fear suffering. We don't have to fear death. We can go through life with victory and hope because Jesus has already paid the price for us. So we should be substantially different than the people around us. We should look different and talk differently and, and demonstrate by our responses to hard things that we have a faith that transcends our circumstances. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. And in closing, I'd like us to turn to Romans 8. If you have your scripture, turn, turn to Romans 8, and we're going to see a parallel passage where Paul links these same themes as Peter does in, in chapter 3 of his first epistle. Paul's echoing Peter's thoughts. So beginning in verse 18 of Romans 8, I'm going to read until verse 25. And then I'm, for the sake of time, I'm going to jump down to 38 and 39. And just listen to those common themes of suffering, of hope, of God's authority, and of God's love for us in Christ. Think of those. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Verse 38. What's his conclusion? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, to include suffering, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Suffering is an integral part of what it means to be a follower after Jesus Christ. No servant is greater than his or her master. And so we need to endure suffering and do so in a manner that points others to him. So we need to be prepared to suffer. We need to think about what that looks like in our lives. We need to be prepared to suffer for what is right, knowing that that might be God's will for us. We might intentionally be placed in hard times, Because that communicates in a way that nothing else does the overwhelming eternal power and glory of the good news of the gospel. Only the grace of God changes us. And how is that really seen by a cynical world? By a a world that is full of, of hate and anger and despair and discouragement and anxiety That is demonstrated when we suffer well and we endure unjust things for Christ. And when we do that, what do we do? We reflect reflect that glory back to him. As we hold up the diamond of our faith and we, we show that brilliance of the gospel to the people around us. And so... We don't need to fear suffering. We don't need to fear death because the Lord has gone before us. He's won victory over sin and death. And our baptism demonstrates that to our world around us. So we can go into this week, into this unknown future, whether it's PCSing, whether it's dealing with a hard loved one, whether it's engaging with that challenge at work, we can face the future with confidence because Christ is on the throne and he's won the victory. So let's take hope in that. Let's be encouraged by that and go forward in the joy of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for speaking uh, to us today. We thank you for the opportunity opportunity this morning to come together to corporately worship you. 
We know that you are blessed when we truly worship you in spirit and in truth. And we, we trust God that uh, you are glorified with the result of our praise today. This is a, a hard thing for us to be willing to suffer and to do so for you. God, we know that we can't do it on our own. We know that uh, we need you. And so we pray that your grace would be sufficient for our need. Help us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Help us to have your eternal perspective when we look at hard things that are coming our way. And to endure suffering and demonstrate the glory and the majesty and the power of your grace to transform us with the hope that the people around us might see that truth and come to know Jesus as their Savior as well. So God, we pray for our loved ones. We pray for our friends. Um, We pray for those around us who desperately need you. And for those of us who have already professed our faith in you, we need you just as much as everyone else. We are not... Uh, we are not Christ and, and we always need you. So help us to, to submit to you, to surrender to you and to, to be willing and prepared to suffer for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.